that could be the key that unlocks this whole thing if any of those claims are true. And so certainly UFO claims have the same sort of potential. And so I, I didn't know much about the subject. And at the behest of a friend, I read Witness to Roswell, and it was pretty compelling. <laughs> so it seems like something happened there that was beyond just the errant weather balloon. Hey, Unexplained Ones, scroll down to the show notes in your app or browser and click the link to buy The Phenomenal Sasquatch by Matt Pruitt. And head over to ParanormalityMag.com to save 10% with promo code BigfootUFO. We know now that in the early years of the 20th century, this world was being watched closely by intelligences greater than man's. Did the CIA write Wind of Change by the Scorpions? (laughs) (laughs) As humans busied themselves about the various concerns, they were scrutinized and studied. Dr. Loeb, what percentage chance do you give it that you have indeed uncovered extraterrestrial or non-human technology? With infinite complacence, people went about their affairs, yet across an immense ethereal gulf, intellects vast and unsympathetic through their plans against us. Prior to your abduction, did you believe in UFOs or any sort of alien life form? All things unexplained. So some of that I think there will say for close session. And now part two with Matt Pruitt, author of The Phenomenal Sasquatch. Pick it up at BigfootUFO.com. He's also the producer of Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. Eliza Harley Quinn here is asking, and this is a long one, aside from the general stigma of reporting a Bigfoot sighting, do you think that if there was an actual protocol or procedure to doing so, people would be more likely to speak up? Or would you think the stigma is still too strong and wouldn't make a difference? It's a good question. I think it depends on a number of factors. And, you know, I did describe some of this in the book um, because someone had made a suggestion a a few years ago. And, you know, I've heard variations of this suggestion many times, but someone had specifically said, oh, well, we should take a database if the witnesses are still living, like the BFRO's database and subject witnesses who are willing to talk to psychometric evaluations and see if there's certain psychological factors that make people more likely to see a Sasquatch. And I said, well, that's not what you're going to get because the BFRO, or even in my experience, you know, they're getting the reports of those are people who are willing to reach out to total strangers. And so what you're going to get is not the number of people who have the experience of observing or encountering a Sasquatch, you're going to get the people who had the experience and who are willing to talk about it to a total stranger. So that's a whole another dimension there. Like, let me make some predictions, okay? You'll probably find that people are more extroverted in that category. They are probably low in neuroticism because they're less sensitive to negative emotions, so they're not as worried about being disbelieved or rejected. They're low in agreeableness because they don't care if you believe them or not. They're just, they want to tell someone what happened. And so I think even if we did have a protocol of sorts, you're still going to have a number of people who are just not willing to talk about it because maybe they are higher in neuroticism. And so they're just so sensitive to 
maybe being disbelieved. And I think people that are very high in agreeableness in terms of the big five personality traits are easily swayed sometimes when a skeptic's like, you don't really think you saw that, do you? That's not really what you think, is it? Oh, no, you know, maybe it was just a bear, you know, because they're, they're trying to be agreeable or vice versa. I've seen the other thing happen where it's like, you saw a squatch, man. There's nothing else it could have been. And it was just a silhouette in the dark 200 yards away, you know. And they're like, yeah, I guess I did see a Sasquatch. It's like, nah, you saw a silhouette at night, you know. <laughs> so I think to get rid of that stigma, there would have to be some assurances. But so to answer the question, I, I think it is possible. The other thing that I think happens uh, that I've seen in my own experience very often is that it depends on the setting. So, uh, for example, national parks. Well, who lives in national parks? No one. They're protected. They're national parks, right? So they're tourists. And so they're people from all over the country and they're people from all over the world who go there. They have no personal stake in what occurs there. So they have no qualms about, hey, I saw this thing. Why? Because, well, I came here to see wildlife and I saw this weird thing. And so you have these higher reports in certain national parks, whereas, uh, you know, a lot of people have experiences on their own properties, but they're not willing to talk about it. They're not going to invite outsiders onto their land or into their homes. You know, especially people that live in some of these rural areas where I grew up in southern Appalachia, they don't want outsiders traipsing around on their property. So even then, there's a certain category of witness who's uh, disincentivized to make such reports because it invites some element in that they might not want, whether it's outsiders. And especially, let's say, if it was some official fishing game or the game warden or something like that. So I do think to the, the listener's question, it would be helpful and it probably would generate more reports but I, I still think there are other levels other reasons that people have for not reporting things that um, hopefully we'd be able to break through at some point but yeah there's just so many disincentives currently I can understand why people don't report things same seems to be true in the UAP phenomena right now okay we are talking with Matt Pruitt the author of the phenomenal stats excuse me, Sasquatch. And you can pick up a copy of that book if you visit BigfootUFO.com. We have a question from a friend of the show, Blake Best. In fact, Blake created the intro music that we used tonight. We have used his music for many things. A very talented guy. Blake, thank you for joining us. And a cryptid author himself. And a cryptid author, yes. So Blake is asking Matt, how do you feel about the belief that Sasquatch are somehow connected to interdimensional travel. You know, I think that that's an extension of a very old idea that human beings have had about animals for as long as we've been around. And so if you are, if you dig into traditional ecological knowledge, not just to, related to these ape-like creatures that, you know, we couch under the rubric of the Sasquatch now in North America. But if you look into the histories of indigenous oral traditions about a number of animals around the world, especially ones that are large, very rare, very mobile in a, in a large home range, elusive animals, you'll find very often the same sort of beliefs associated with them that they can mediate between worlds. Now, in pre-experimental societies, the language would usually be something like it's a mediation between the physical realm and the spiritual realm or our world and the underworld, let's say. And I think a lot of that is just the, the, the phenomenological experience of an animal that does seem to materialize out of nothing and then vanish back into thin air 
in the same way that you'd experience other elusive animals like tigers being a great example. And so the same sort of supernatural beliefs that are associated with bears, tigers, even gorillas that are associated with the Sasquatch. It's just that now that those other categories of animals are known, let's say, I mean, they've obviously been well known to indigenous peoples around the world for millennia. But, you know, once the Western world or non-natives discovered them, you know, well, now we sort of drop a lot of those more mystical lenses that we see the world through. And believe you me, we all see the world through mystical lens to some degree. Magical thinking is sort of like the normative way of human thinking. I've heard so many people take offense when I say that. And I'm like, look, man, science is a method. You know, it's a process. It's very new. It's only a few hundred years old. And we had to develop it so that we could strip away the sub subjective to get to the objective. And people go, no, 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 no. Science is the natural way of thinking. It's like, no, it's not. If it was, we wouldn't need the method. We wouldn't need the process. We would just see the world objectively, but we don't. Why? Because we're not objects, we're subjects. And so when it comes to the unknown, which currently Sasquatch is still in that category of the unknown, well, they, they fit that other criteria, large, rare, highly mobile, very furtive, elusive animals. But as long as they leave that sort of void in our understanding, we will populate that void with the contents of our minds, contents of our imaginations, our particular interpretive schema. And the thing is, in today's world, people like to think that they are so distant from the peoples of the past. Oh, can you believe those Stone Age people believed such hogwash? You know, and we're we're the same exact creatures. You know, we're exactly the same biological things as the humans of the past. It's just one thing we've done is update the nomenclature. So we say interdimensional rather than mediator of the physical realms and the spiritual world. But it's the same idea. It's the same core concept. It's like, well... Sometimes, you know, this animal sort of seems to appear out of nowhere and then, you know, takes off and you can't find it again. And so how do you explain that? Okay, well, maybe it went into the spirit realm or maybe it's interdimensional. But because I do think they're biological in nature and I don't think that tigers or bears or gorillas have the ability to shift between dimensions or have interdimensional navigation abilities. I suspect that the Sasquatch doesn't either, but that it, the human experiences the Sasquatch in the same way that we do these other very rare animals. That is a unique take on it. I actually hadn't heard of it or heard that said quite that way before. So thank you for sharing that with us. One more question from Blake, more of a personal one. So we'll see how much you know here. He said, have you heard about the sugar flat road creature incident? That happened in my home state of Tennessee in 1989. I don't know anything about that. I drive through there all the time. It's near a, a town called Lebanon, Tennessee. It's uh, just kind of like up the road. And there's some really pretty country out there. There's a, a land formation that sort of sits around Nashville. Nashville's kind of in a basin. And then there's this series of hills that's almost perfectly circular called the Highland Rim. And so there's a portion of the Highland Rim over there. And uh, someone had made this sort of like taxidermied, I'm sure if you Googled it, you could find it, like Lebanon Bigfoot or Sugar Flat Bigfoot, but it's a taxidermied head and it's white. The fur that they use is white, almost like a white-tailed deer's tail fur or something like that. But it was it sat in the window of this shop in Lebanon, Tennessee, and had this whole like backstory about someone had either hit it with a car or in other versions of the story, someone had shot it on this Sugar Flat road and uh, they had 
cut its head off and taxidermed it. Nothing's still around somewhere. I think it's in one of those like museums of the weird now. I don't think it's here in Middle Tennessee anymore. But yes, I am familiar with that story. And um, surprisingly, you know, what's really interesting um, since Blake is, is from, I guess, that area, but at least from Tennessee, there were a number of reports along parts of the Highland Rim that go up until about the late 90s. And then they just totally dry up which is interesting. Even the years that I was in the Bigfoot Field Researchers Organization, which had a huge database, and especially once Finding Bigfoot, which was the series about that organization, tons of reports started flooding in. None really came in from Middle Tennessee, especially from the Highland Rim. To me, that's very suggestive of a biological reality, is that you know it was good habitat and it was interconnected to other portions of good habitat, like the Mississippi River Basin to the west, and then the Cumberland Plateau to the east. And then you know that's part of Southern Appalachia, technically, with progress and areas being logged and cut off and road building and then people moving into these areas. It's fascinating that the reports die off because there were a, a number throughout the 20th century until the very late 90s. And so you think, well, if it was entirely imaginary, when you in introduce more human observers, more hunters, more hikers, you should have more reports. If it's entirely in the mind of the observer, you wouldn't expect it to, to stop. And so I do think that there probably were Sasquatches or more reports at least uh, being, more experiences being had or at least claimed uh, in the Highland Rim. So, but some of that stuff is around like not quite Lebanon, but closer to like Carthage and some of these other areas too. Hartsville, if you're familiar with that area, Blake. Great answer. Those are great. Uh, again, a shout out to listener Blake Bass who, uh, wrote the Squatch Rag Shine for us, and he himself is a Loch Ness expert and author. And so uh, thanks, Blake, for those questions. And Matt, we're talking to Matt Pruitt, author of The Phenomenal Sasquatch. In Chapter 5 of your book, you talk about the modern era. And, and this era, it seems to involve things that have infinite amounts of potential for good in the Sasquatch area, and it, but also infinite amounts of potential for bad. And it involves all of us on here tonight when we're talking about the Sasquatch online. We're talking about new television shows. We're talking about podcasts. You know, if you look at the Apple charts and click on science, it's filled with Bigfoot podcast. This truly is a modern era capable of good and bad what can you tell us about this, Matt? I think there's a lot of, I mean, again, everything has a cost and a benefit, you know. So there are certainly costs um, in that anonymity. Anyone can can make claims. You know, previously, there were only a handful of investigators. Like in the early days, it was John Green of British Columbia, who was a journalist. And, you know, he interviewed witnesses and would publish these testimonies in the early days, he would actually have witnesses sign legal affidavits because the thought was back then that scientists would be more apt to investigate these claims. If they had signed a legal affidavit, you know, testifying to the veracity of their, their claim. And of course, you know, that didn't quite help. And so there's a world of difference between like, you know, interviewing a person face to face, recording their narrative, having them sign it, you know, legally testifying to its veracity. And then, read it, you know, or 
call into a radio show and, you know, oh, we've got John Doe on the line. And, you know, I've seen 30 of them, you know, in my barn the other day or whatever the case may be. So, of course, anonymity hurts things a bit, but it also has brought out some witnesses that are probably telling the truth. I think one of the big benefits is that it does sort of remove the gatekeeper, so to speak. I mean, because back then, back in the day, there were sort of gatekeepers. We all have biases, right? I mean, there's there's things. I mean, obviously, I lean towards a biological hypothesis, a biological sort of grounded view, biological, ecological view. I think they're associated with these Asian apes in history. And so that puts a number of constraints on me, obviously, because I'm like, well, how, how does this jive with biological reality and this, that, and the other? And so, of course, I'm going to be biased. You know, if someone's like, oh, hey, I saw one, you know, floating, levitating 40 feet off the ground and flying clear across the lake, you know, or whatever the case, no one's ever reported that to me, but those sorts of claims do exist <laughs> online, you know? So there were always gatekeepers that would say, okay, I do think this report is worthy of investigation and I'll publish what I find versus I'm not certain that this one is. Now with podcasts, people are getting to hear directly from witnesses, which I think is a very good thing. They're not having to hear the investigator's interpretation of what the witness saw. Because, you know, what you see is what you see. And the way you describe it is there is a bit of interpretation that happens. The language that you choose to use, the sort of framework that you put it in to reconcile it. And then as an investigator, you know, we're interpreting that. And then we offer our interpretation of it. And so it's a couple of stages removed. So I think it's great through podcasts that people can hear directly from claimants who describe their encounters. And when you listen to enough of those people and you hear directly from liars and yarn spinners, you start to be able to differentiate those things pretty easily because a certain sort of claim stacks up, a certain sort of description, phenomenological elements, observational elements, et cetera, versus the wild outliers you're like okay i just listened to 100 witnesses on 100 podcasts and this one sounds like i can dismiss it and so it gives every listener that ability to do it so there's cost benefit there but i do think that's a big benefit i mean i spend i mean i produce a sasquatch related podcast but i spend a lot of time listening to podcasts of all sorts not just in the sasquatch related one but Anonymity has its costs and benefits, too, because there are some people who would only tell their story publicly if they knew that no one would ever figure out their identity. Right. And so right. those people have an outlet through certain podcasts or other online venues, you know. So but it's as you know, it's a wild world online. And like, <laughs> I'd rather be in the woods with the snakes and the bears sometimes than on social media. That's for sure. Oh, absolutely. One thing I realized when we got together the other night to do a little squatching is that, you know what? We didn't see any Bigfoots, Sasquatches. We didn't see any UFOs. But what we did do was we did get together and fellowship together as people. And we found that personal connection with each other as humans. We found humans. And ever since COVID, I've realized that we should never take that for granted, the opportunity to get out and connect with each other, right? So I would love to follow up on a, something you said there with, with two things. One, in this modern era, what do you think is greater, the potential for good in Sasquatch research in the modern era 
or the potential for bad with what you dub exploiters in your book. And then two, you mentioned the Bigfoot and Beyond podcast, which you produced with Cliff and Bobo from Finding Bigfoot. Can you tell us a little bit about that and where people can find it? Oh, certainly. So for your first question, I mean, every human endeavor is, you know, going to be infected to some degree by people who are out to exploit others. And so skeptics will use that and go, oh, look at the Bigfoot thing. There's some of these people are hoaxing and some of these people are hoaxing for money. And, you know, some of these people are deceiving people intense, you know, uh, so intently that, you know, it's it's basically extortion in some cases on and on and on. It's like, yeah, but that doesn't mean that the whole endeavor is not worthwhile, because otherwise, let's throw out the legal system and the justice system and the medical system and the pharmaceutical system and the government. I mean, there are bad actors in every human endeavor, and it's very unfortunate. And I wish there weren't any part of pointing that out in the book is sort of like, here's the commonalities between some of these exploiters that I've seen over the years. And maybe that will help other people recognize it. Because I do think that they sort of blur what little data we do have, you know, trying to piece it together into this coherent model of like, what is the Sasquatch? And then basically the exploiters and the hoaxers are just like defacing it. You know, they're vandalism, graffiti, planting their own flags. And then people can't tell like, well, what's the what's the thing we're looking for? What's the noise and what's the signal anymore? And newcomers think it's all signal. They can't really differentiate between that yet. It's no reason to give up on aiming for the good or, and it's no reason that, you know, cynical people, like I said, will go, oh, it's all hogwash. It's all hoaxers and liars. It's like, no, it's not. It's just not. Any more than, like I said, you find a corrupt or a bad actor in any other human endeavor, you wouldn't throw out the whole endeavor just because of a few bad actors. So I do hope that, you know, People, I, I try to be very optimistic about the future of the subject. I just would love to have a conclusive answer to that fundamental question, not only for myself, but obviously it would be great to have one for the, you know, the, the satisfaction of everyone involved in this pursuit. You know, whether it ends up being something that's not the biological hypothesis that I offer, like I'd love to be wrong about that. But I do think that that's the most likely answer. Well, can and I then, interrupt uh, real quick on that? Certainly. Matt, do you want to find the answer or do you think that the mystery itself is better? No, I think the answer would be better. I definitely okay. do. I really, I mean, there would be unintended consequences because there always are. Right. You know, that's, and I talk about this at the end of the book is that, you know, everyone who's engaged in any sort of endeavor, like there, there is a bit of a moral aim and it's sort of nested within like a, an imaginative vision of the future. And so I think for proponents, if these animals are real, understanding them will benefit us and maybe it'll benefit them. And maybe we can protect more of their habitat and we can learn about ourselves and our evolution and our close relatives, et cetera. And we can, again, protect lands that they might need or stop certain areas from being cut. But could be the, there could be unintended consequences too, whereas like discovery has a negative impact. You just don't know, but you have a certain vision. And I think for the skeptics, too, it's like their vision or the, not just skeptics, but cynics, let's say people who are out to debunk everything, you know, I'm, there's no shortage of those people in the UFO world, too. I think that they have the same utopian vision is that the world will be a better place if we can eliminate the lies and if we can 
knock down the pseudoscience and we can peel the blindfolds off people and show them the truth, you know, which is that UFOs don't exist or Sasquatches don't exist, whatever, fill in the blank. They are still sort of like moral agents on their own quest to bring about a, a vision of a greater good. You know, they don't see themselves as the villains, certainly. But that has unintended. Sometimes they debunk the wrong people. You know, sometimes they defame or discredit perfectly good people. And so, you know, you just don't know what's going to happen. I mean, there's this idea, you know, the, the whole scientific endeavor is like maybe an investigation of the material world will bring about advances that will make human life flourish, progress. Or maybe it'll end a nuclear war. We'll see. Oh, you know what I mean? I mean, it's like either we just don't know. Mm. Uh, but I'm very optimistic or else I wouldn't have been doing this for as long as I have. <laughs> and so, uh, so no, I know I do think it's, it's worth figuring out the answer. I think it'll vindicate a lot of people, witnesses who've been ridiculed, academics or scientists who put their reputations on the line just to look into the question. And man, don't you want to see like, if they exist, don't you want to see like the four hour Netflix or Nat Geo special documentary with all the cool, I mean, yeah, I yeah. And I think it's safe to assume you could be involved in that project. I think so. I don't know. I've never seen one, so I'm not very good at this. You know, <laughs> I've been trying for a long time. So has there been any evidence of Bigfoot? We're talking about modern times, satellite imagery or any sort of caught on a drone or something to that effect. No, I mean, you have to think the, the analogy I always use with people is like pull up North Georgia on Google Maps right now, you know, or uh, Google Earth. You know, you see this aerial photos, the satellite view, et cetera. And if we just look at northeast Georgia or the portion of North Georgia, that's the Chattahoochee National Forest. The estimates are that there's roughly 5000 black bears in there. I will give you one hundred dollars for every bear that you can find me in those images. Yeah. And you won't because there's a canopy, you know, and, right. and even in the wintertime when the deciduous leaves fall, there's still thickets of, of pine or, you know, other rhododendron, mountain laurel, holly, other things that are evergreen. And so I don't think satellites will ever produce an image unless one were to walk out into some open area at exactly the right moment in time where it could be differentiated from a human or, or some other sort of animal. So, but again, any, 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 image you look at of southern appalachia there are thousands of black bears in that image at any right. given point in time find one you know and That's so true. if sasquatches exist they're in those images too they're just through that canopy great well, point my uncle when he was of course he's in his 70s but when he was a little kid there was a man in north mississippi said that and he was an old gentleman at the time so he was uh, back during wagon times you know because around here in the late or early 1900s, people still use wagons. And so he said that they went to a, a revival one night and they snuck out to go smoke a cigarette. They were sitting in the back of a wagon. So all of a sudden, a Sasquatch came out of the woods, couldn't see them, and went to the front of the porch. Of course, here there was no air conditioner or anything at that time, anyhow, period, anywhere, pretty much. And so the back doors were open, or the front doors, and said he placed his hands on the, the porch and sat and watched the congregation for a few minutes and then just stood up and just walked off in the darkness. He said that the man said he was so scared he didn't know what to do. He just stayed in the wagon 
and tried not to move. Yeah, people have reported seeing them look at windows, and you know, it reminds me of a uh, an anthropology the a professor at a community college in the Atlanta area uh, that I communicated with about the subject. He did research on the Cheyenne Reservation when he was writing his doctoral thesis, and had a re- this event occur that uh, he went with one of the, I guess, the tribal. I don't know if they were tribal law enforcement or not, but anyway, it was at a prayer house and there was snow on the ground and there were these huge man-like tracks, you know, very large Sasquatch tracks apparently and or ostensibly. And the previous night, these, uh, I guess it's sort of like a youth group were in this prayer house meeting and convening and said they saw the Sasquatch come and stare in the window at him for a while. This professor had said, because we were discussing the subject and he said, you know, he was so flabbergasted, like, here's the Sasquatch story, and there's these tracks in the snow. And he said the older Cheyenne gentleman he was with said to the young people, was like, would you put food out for him? And they were like, huh? And he said, you kids, you don't know anything. He was probably hungry, and you made him stand there. You're supposed to put out food for him. You, it was just very dismissive that they should have already known what to do in this situation. And so he had said, uh, the professor, he was like, I don't know if they're real or not. He said, but... Those tracks were real, and what those young people reported, you know, probably in their teens or early 20s, what they reported seemed authentic, and he said this older guy knew all, like it didn't even phase him to hear that a Sasquatch walked up and looked in the window at night watching these people inside. So there's a lot of stories, similar descriptions of behavior. That's a great story, and that brings up a an aspect of squatching. I'm using a term directly from finding Bigfoot here that perhaps evolved in the modern era and that is gifting. Matt, do you think there's something to this notion of gifting or, or even on a more basic level, feeding wild animals? Certainly that, that might come into play. Oh, certainly. I mean, there's a number of stories where people claim to have, you know, had food stolen or to have left food intentionally for Sasquatches over a period of time and occasionally had sightings that way. And so, I mean, you would expect the same behavior from other large omnivorous mammals. You know, bears will will exploit human food resources very often. And so I don't see why these things wouldn't, you know, again, if they do exist. And, you know, we've all tried it as researchers uh, in various ways and shapes and forms. But, yeah, some of those stories are very compelling, very often at people's properties or at their homes. And some of the more aggressive reports I'm aware of involve food, uh, where there seemed to be some food source that the thing was exploiting, unbeknownst to the person the person just knows that like hey this stuff's gone every time i put it out and they finally get frustrated oh my neighbor's stealing my feed bags or you know some bear is coming in at night and stealing these feed bags or whatever the food may be and they stop putting it out and that's usually you know the banging on the house or throwing rocks at the house or these sort of escalations of aggressive behavior and i've heard that time and time and time again all over the country which is really interesting. And usually these are claimants who they don't know much about the subject. They were reaching out and like, Hey, I'm having strange things. Sometimes they'll catch a glimpse or they'll see it. And they'll re- like, usually people have on these repeated visitation cases, they have strange things happening that they're just hearing because a lot of it's at night. Now, most people in their decision tree of what could be making these sounds, the Sasquatch is not on there. So they're like, is that a person? Is that a bear? You know, what, what's going on out here? So like we said, some people, it's a ghost. And then eventually they'll see it. 
they catch a glimpse of it and then they'll realize that is what's been doing these other things for the last however many weeks and months and so you know i've heard these reports from people and they'll oh you have something slapping my house or throwing rocks at the house or whatever the case may be and i'll be like well do you have food outside no no, no nothing like that like okay what about compost pile or trash or do you have dogs and one gentleman in particular was in arkansas no nothing like that and you know we don't have outdoor dogs and so later in the conversation he had said something about the little barn and i was like well, what's in the barn and he's like oh we got a couple like little ponies down there like, okay well what do you feed him and he's like oh well i used to have these big bags of sweet feed big 75 pound bags of sweet feed but uh my neighbor kept breaking in the barn and stealing them and he's like i don't know why you'd steal them they're cheap you know it only costs so much so he's like i i, I don't even store them in the barn anymore i'm like where do you store them he's like oh in the house and i was like <laughs> so when did the banging start and he was like about the time i started putting the sweet feet in the house and i was like there you go those things were coming down there and they found this free food source if that's what it was if it was sasquatches and then they'd probably seen him you know truck coming in and unloading these bags and instead of dumping them in the barn because you imagine you know if you're a wild animal in north america the richest uh, source of sugar you're going to get is honey and you're not going to get much of it and it's not going to be that fun or easy to get you know honey right. from beehives it'll you know. come at a price so you find a 75 pound bag of sweet pea you know it's just like starch rich and sugar rich and carbohydrate rich i'm sure and that's a big payoff you know and and so those sorts of things i've heard those kinds of encounters many many times so a lot of that's why you'll hear a lot of people say like oh don't don't start trying to feed the things at your house unless you plan on just doing it perpetually because if you stop so I don't know. I've never experienced that directly, but I've heard from many, many claimants along those lines. And it makes a lot of sense if you think about it, of course. And I mentioned the term squatching. We're so honored tonight, by the way, to have Matt Pruitt with us, author of The Phenomenal Sasquatch. You can pick it up at BigfootUFO.com. we got folks tuning in on YouTube, on Twitter, or X, on Facebook. You can find all those for us on BigfootUFO.com as well. Matt, I feel like squatching, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I honestly think it entered the common vernacular during the Finding Bigfoot show. We all loved Finding Bigfoot. My favorite part of Finding Bigfoot with Matt Moneymaker and Cliff and Bobo. Renee. And what really set it apart were the town hall events, right, where they brought everybody together and, and heard all these different stories from all these different people in a polite respectful setting right and i just thought that really set it apart and now you are the producer of the bigfoot and beyond podcast with cliff and bobo what can you tell us about bigfoot and beyond and working with cliff and bobo oh certainly well i think for credit where credit's due i think the first time squatching was really out there was there was a filmmaker named scott harriet a re researcher and filmmaker made a little documentary called that and i think but bobo popularized it and so certainly it got into the like the world consciousness because of finding bigfoot but even bobo uses like oh you know scott scott made up that <laughs> term everyone credits bobo with it though but i'd actually known uh all those people prior to the series so i met Matt Moneymaker in 2007 and was going out in the field with him and then joined the Bigfoot Field Researchers Organization. 
And then I moved to Washington from Georgia. I actually met Renee in 2008. And she was on a couple of field expeditions that I was on. I spent a little time with her there. But then when the show was being developed, she was one of the, the people that sort of got the call to be the non-believer, let's say. You know, she kind of plays the role of the skeptic, so to speak. The but, scully. You know, they, yeah, they didn't want a whole... Exactly. That would be a, 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 CJ. a, good, a good reference there. And then I met Cliff and Bobo both in 2009. Now, I'd known about Bobo for years because, you know, he's a pretty legendary character in Sasquatchery and definitely has lived up to it. And so I I was spending a lot of time with Cliff when I lived out there. And then the show got picked up when we really bonded is uh, Bob Saget, the late, great Bob Saget, had a series that was very short lived called Strange Days on A&E. And he filmed an episode going out in the field in the Olympic Peninsula of Washington. It was like Moneymaker and Cliff and Bobo and Barcatino and me and, you know, a bunch of us were present on that shoot. And you can see us in the episode, but he and Bobo, Saget and Bobo really hit it off, you know. So Bobo is like the star of that episode. Me and Cliff really bonded there and then started being out in the field together a lot. And so when the show finally got greenlit, you know, they went and shot a pilot in Alaska and they decided to pick up a whole season, six episodes. I had sort of had this info pack for North Georgia because Moneymaker in the BFR was like, hey, people, send me what you have together so we can pitch some places. So I was like, here's everything I have, with witnesses who are willing to go on camera and pieces of visual evidence that you can look at. And it was one of the first to get greenlit. It was the second one to be filmed on that run. And then it became the premiere episode of the whole series. So that was great fun. And Cliff and Moneymaker especially, and Bobo, you know, the production companies putting that together and Matt and Cliff especially were like, hey, you should just hire Matt Pruitt because he's done all the research. He knows everyone. It's his hometown. He's got all the connections. Just hire him. And they did, which was kind of amazing because I had no experience in production, obviously. You know, I played music professionally, but so music production, but not television production. And so uh, that went really well. It turned out to be a great episode. And then when the next season started to be filmed, they asked me to do the same thing for Oklahoma. So I did that same job for an episode on season three called CSI Bigfoot that we filmed in central Oklahoma. And so, you know, Cliff is like a brother to me. And, and you know, Bobo and I was, had, had a lot of fun. And so when the show ended, the discussion was like, oh, let's keep it. You know, they were talking about having, let's keep the conversation going with our audience. And, they knew that I did a lot of recording and engineering and editing and said, well, hey, if we did a podcast, like, would you want to do it? And and I just wanted it to be easy for them. Like, hey, you guys just talk. I'll do everything else. So we don't record live. You know, it's not like red light fever. I mean, it's really wild, free flowing conversations and mess ups and goof ups and like, hey, what what year did that happen again? Okay. So, you know, in 1968, the thing was, blah, 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 you know, so it's, my role is to like let them do all that and then I'll make the episode out of it so that they don't have to worry about, you know, they can stop and check references or if they say a line that they, oh, let me say that again. I can say that better, you know. So that's sort of my role as producer editor. So they're sort of curated and, and you know, I can, we record individual tracks and I can mix EQ, compress those individually and all that. And so I just wanted it to be the sort of thing where all they had to do was talk and not worry about any of the technical stuff or like I'll handle everything else. So it's been a lot of fun. We're four years in now. I think next week's episode is 232. And then we do a wow. bonus show. 
that we have like 55 episodes of that now that comes out. The main show comes out every Monday and the bonus show comes out every Thursday. So we've been doing two a week now. So done it many times at this point. That's a lot of extra work. <laughs> it is, but you know, it makes them like from playing music, uh, you know, the best producers were the ones that like, just let you create and be you. And they handled all the technical stuff. If you had an oh, idea, yes. you know, it wasn't like, okay, well you need to tweak knobs for 30 minutes before we start to work on your idea. It's like, no, 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 you just be you and I'll handle everything else. You know, it's the same with like management too. You know, I was in a major label band that had some couple of rough years and it's like, no, a good manager makes sure that all you ever have to do is the thing you love and they handle everything else. And that's again, the way I always wanted it to be for them. It's like, you guys just talk, have the conversations, like say whatever you want. You go, oh, take that out, Pruitt. I don't want, oh, we can't let that go on the air. And it's like, okay, I'll <laughs> handle all that afterwards. So it's a lot of fun. It does make a big difference. I'll tell you what, it makes such a big difference. Even the distraction of one small technical situation can completely and utterly throw you off of everything. So not having to deal with that, it sure must be a, a, a real benefit for Cliff and Bobo. We're talking to Matt Pruitt, author of The Phenomenal Sasquatch and producer of the Bigfoot and Beyond podcast with Cliff and Bobo. And I've got just a few things that we would love to get your hot take on. We like to do this with a lot of our guests. And first, I, I'm just going to play a little clip. I think you may have seen this footage before. I don't think it's going to be new to you. And we would love your hot take on this. The infamous Patty, the Patterson-Gimlin film. And that's just my little clip there. Eight seconds of it. Well, it's iconic. Obviously iconic enough that, you know, that's the image everyone associates with with the subject. Um, my hot take, I guess that's when you're supposed to provide like a controversial take, right? Uh, no, no, no. Not in today's it novel. But my hot take would be that it's been spoken of and written of to death. It's one of those things that I'm like, man, if I never spoke about it again, it would be... But to be honest, to be fair, I mean, it's clearly mystifying and fascinating because obviously it's not been thoroughly debunked or conclusively debunked in all this time. And in fact, as technology improves, you know, it's an observation that many people have made. They said it in the 80s. They said it in the 90s. They said it in the early 2000s. Oh, as technology improves, we can see more detail. It stands up. And that seems to be true even now in 2023. The main point against it is the lack of other evidence. That's the frustrating thing. And I don't mean evidence of the event, because obviously you have Gimlin's testimony, Patterson's testimony, the interviews they gave in the aftermath, the left and right tracks that they cast. Days later, Lyle Laverty, Forest Service uh, timber cruiser, comes by, photographs multiple tracks at the site. Days after that, Bob Titmus comes and casts 10 consecutive tracks. So there's a lot of evidence or both anecdotal and physical associated with that event. I think what it implies that people struggle with is that like, well, if that film is of a living animal, then there have to be a species of these things. There, it can't be just like some one-off anomaly that seems to jive with what people describe in Southern Appalachia and the interior highlands and the Ozarks, or the Ozarks are part of the interior highlands, uh, the Adirondacks, the Intermountain West and the Rockies, Pacific Northwest, on and on and on. You know, people describe things that look like that. 
And so very often the, the debates about the film that I hear of like, well, if that's real, then why has no one shot one or found a body yet? Which doesn't really deal with the film. It's one of the, and we definitely, that question needs to be answered. I try to lay out why I think it's possible that that's not occurred yet in the book, but that is one of the frustrating things is that you can show people evidence, you know, A, B, C, D, A through E, you know, and they'll go, yeah, but where's F? And you're like, hey, can we deal with these first before we worry about the thing that's missing? And I can't tell you how many, I even, I put an anecdote in the book, a family friend of mine who uh, who wanted to see sort of, there's a presentation that I would give to the, uh, it was a continuing education. It was actually accredited by North Carolina there, which was pretty funny because I don't even have a degree. But the, the college uh, credit hours for this, of course, I would give it the Park Ranger Institute. That was an overview of the subject. And it's like a three hour long lecture presentation, multimedia. And I presented all this to this family friend and we went over it for a long time. And then at the end, he said, I don't know, man, don't you think someone would have found something by now? And I was like, oh, do you mean like the tracks and the hair and the vocalizations and the everything that we just talked about for three hours? And he's like, <laughs> oh, but besides all that stuff. <laughs> so it's that's getting the main argument you hear about the film that people make. It's like, oh, well, if they were real, we would have found one by now. Ergo, they don't exist. Ergo, that has to be a man in a suit. And, you know, there have been claims from people who claim to be the person in the suit. And some of that I address in the book. You know, it's an it's an open question. If the film is legitimate, you know, I think there's a perfectly normal environmental reason that you would have that opportunity in that, and I know we're probably going way over time, so if you need to shut me up, just let me know. But um, no, it's you know, great. That's a tight, narrow drainage, Bluff Creek. You know, it's in steep country. And in three years prior, in 1964, there was a massive flood that affected all the tributaries of the Klamath. And so, man, when you drive through there, like some of those roads, you're driving along the mountainside, and the Klamath River's way down below you, and up on the stone wall next to the road there's these flood markers that are so insanely high that show you the flood of 64 and so that canyon as that if i understand it right if i remember correctly huge blizzard like snowfall accumulated and then it heated up very quickly so all that snowfall melted and caused this flooding and in that steep tight narrow canyon all that raging flood water basically denuded everything in the bottom of it. That's why you see in that footage, big open sort of destruction, big giant sandbar. I've been there uh, in 2010. It's like a jungle now. If you look up, many people go there, look up videos. It looks like a thick jungle-y sort of forest, which is the way it should have looked. But in essence, any animal that lived in that drainage after that flood, if it wanted to access water to drink, it had to leave the security of the tree line to approach the waterway. And it was a pretty remote spot. I mean, obviously, they were doing some logging back there. So there were roads. But even still, when people are, oh, why would it be out in the open like that? Well, every animal in Bluff Creek that wanted to access that water source had to leave the security of the tree line stride out across that, that denuded area in order to get water. And so you have luck, if it's real, you know, luck of Patterson and Gimlin, right place, right time. They claim it was squatted down when they first saw it. So we would presume its ears are close to the rushing water. So maybe it didn't hear the approach of the horses. Maybe it was drinking. Who knows? Uh, or just staring at its own reflection. Like, 
Frankenstein or something like that. Who knows? But And you just happen to have this environmental context that it had flooded. And so otherwise, they'd seem to stay in you know, reports come from very densely forested areas. And occasionally they'll cross a road following a waterway or something like that. But it is it has been beaten to death. There's great books about it. I would suggest reading all of them, the skeptical and the proponent books. You know, Bill Munn's When Roger Met Patty is a fascinating read. Greg Long's The Making of Bigfoot is a fascinating read. It's it's still worthy of further scrutiny. Absolutely. And another hot take for you, speaking of heavily forested areas that have been denuded, but not at this time. And I'm actually wearing a shirt from this area, Mount St. Helens. In 1924, in Ape Canyon on Mount St. Helens, some miners apparently had a violent encounter with some Sasquatches who were hurling rocks and other things at their cabin on on a cliff inside the canyon, apparently trying to run them off. What's your hot take? 1924, Ape Canyon incident. I think it's very important historically because it actually did make the Associated Press. It, it spread. Most of those other print media articles I talked about um, stayed local. They might have gotten picked up by another paper here or there regionally, but that story really went far and wide. You know what they call the apes. I fought the apes of you know. Then there was the the great ape hump, ape, the great ape hunt, not hump. <laughs> The Great Ape Hunt of 24, which after the publication of that article and it's spreading on the AP wire, all sorts of folks started coming there with guns, trying to like bag one of these things. And the Forest Service basically had to shut it down because they thought people were just going to be shooting at each other. Um, so it was the first Sasquatch related story to get national attention. And it predated the word Sasquatch. So they just called them mountain devils or apes. And then interestingly, there was a, uh, an article written by a guy named uh, George Totsky. And he wrote for, I believe the publication was called The Real American, but he was a, an indigenous person. And he sort of makes the first connection in print media to say, what these guys are calling apes or mountain devils, you know, we've called this for so long. And let me just make sure I'm using the, the correct nomenclature because there's obviously so many indigenous words alike like Siatic and Skookum and Siatic and Siatko. So I'm trying to remember exactly which one he references there. Uh, Siatic. So yeah, it was he he wrote for a magazine and he was the editor of The Real American, which was a publication for indigenous people. But he did write an article released by the Oregonian in the aftermath where he basically makes that first connection in print media between what the non-natives, you know, people like the, the settlers were calling apes or mountain devils what the indigenous people called seatics and saying like these are the same thing we've known about these things for a long time and he describes them they're very big hair covered etc so that ape canyon encounter is very important historically for those reasons well and i would be remiss if i didn't follow up on that matt and i, I just feel like i have to do this but obviously if there was a population of apes in the mount st helens area then clearly the mount st helens eruption would have had some sort of significant ecological impact on that population as it did every animal population including homo sapiens you know there are theories out there that the military coordinated an effort to potentially remove sasquatch bodies what do you think about these theories 
the source of that story comes from a single individual who claimed that his father told him that he witnessed that occur. And this individual was associated with uh, Ray Crow and the Western Bigfoot Society in Oregon. And so he first published it, uh, I think, as an anonymous letter. In He had a, a publication, a little newsletter he called The Track Record. And that's where that story originated from. And then I think it was, could be wrong, but this book, Who's Watching You by Linda Kolosucci, she points out that the individual was Fred Bradshaw, who was sort of a known, what's the right word here? I guess maybe yarn spinner or troublemaker, I guess fairly harmless guy, but spinner of tall tales by reputation. I never met Fred, uh, so I don't know from personal experience, but so essentially that all stems from that one single source of like, oh, well, my dad said he saw such and such occur. And it's gotten mythologized in the internet era where people go, oh, you know, lots of people said they saw these helicopters carrying body bags with hairy arms and legs hanging out of them which are just all permutations of this one story that Ray Crow put in the track record years ago. And so like you, there's no contemporary, there's no people alive today that made those claims or even really back then. It's just one of those things that gets mythologized and repeated and retold. Like there's other examples of that. The Loch Ness surgeon's photo that was basically yes. a deathbed confession that has been so heavily conflated with Patterson that I cannot tell you how many people I've met that are like, oh yeah, Patterson confessed on his deathbed that he faked that footage. It's like, no, he didn't. There's no record of that anywhere whatsoever. It's people conflating these two events and it gets mythologized and repeated that way. And I think the St. Helens story is the same deal. Whereas you have an animal that's got a ostensibly a very large home range based on, there's a number of reasons that we think that would be the case, but even putting Sasquatch aside, let's say mountain lions, how many mountain lions frequent the, St. Helens area at any given time. They have big home ranges and they need a lot of space and they're fairly, you know, solitary animals. And so even Helens blowing and affecting a certain area, how many mountain lions did it take out? Maybe one or two, who knows, maybe more, but it's very small number. You look at like the trophic pyramid, you know, the, the distribution of, of the energy of the sun essentially through the natural world via food. You know, you've got all your small rodents and things at the bottom. As you get to those apex predators, you know, there's very few. They're very rare animals. You know, they're small in number. And so it's certainly possible that the explosion of that volcano, the eruption, would have had an effect. But I don't think there would have been, like, bodies being flown in and out of there. But since we can go back to, like, here's the first time that was ever said anywhere and who said it. Because it wasn't during the time. It was like in the 90s when Fred right. Bradshaw apparently made this claim. It wasn't in the actual eruption. So I think we could chalk that one up as like a, a tall tale, you know. Oh, good point. We're so thankful to have Matt Pruitt here with us tonight, author of The Phenomenal Sasquatch. You know, Matt, on our podcast, we have seen a definite correlation between Sasquatch encounters and UFO alien encounters what is your gut this reaction feel like a hot take I I, it's a little bit of a buildup what's your gut reaction here well one is there a statistical correlation that you have noticed between sasquatches and ufo activity and but also the keystone event of all of ufology what's your gut instinct about what happened in 1947 in roswell new mexico well, in terms of the Sasquatch UFO thing, like I'm not a, a student of the UFO subject, but 
I find it fascinating. And so, you know, I've read some books and I've listened to, you know, Micah Hanks is a good friend of mine and he's very connected in that world. So I've learned a lot from listening to his podcast and speaking to him. But, you know, the UFO, let's say, is a worldwide phenomenon. Like people claim to see these things all over the planet. The Sasquatch is not. So it's, there's a very big difference there. Now, mystery apes do occur in other parts of the world. You know, there's essentially North America, you have the Sasquatch. You go into uh, Siberia down through China, you know, have Sasquatch-like creatures, you know, roughly the same height with that extend down through like the Malaysian Peninsula down into essentially Australia, you know, with the Yowie. And then as you go further westward, you have these more man-like forms like the Almas, the Almasti, which are very markedly different than what people report for the Sasquatch. And then in the islands, you have the diminutive hominids, Orang Pindek, Ibu Gogo, etc. You do not find mystery apes in the Carpathians, Scandinavia, you know, Bavaria, the Alps, on and on and on, Fiji, Korea, you know, plenty of like forested mountain habitats where, again, if it was the product of the human mind, why aren't they being seen there? If they're associated with UFOs, why aren't they seen everywhere that UFOs are seen? There's no Sasquatch reports from Hawaii. Uh, again, you could you know, pull many of these places out of a hat around the world. And so, of course, if you have a global phenomenon like the UFO and a localized phenomenon or a continental phenomenon like the Sasquatch, of course, they'll co-occur in places. But I would also say, like, well, if a Sasquatch was seen in North Georgia and UFOs are seen in North Georgia, why would I think that the two would be connected? Why wouldn't I think that, well, there's a lot of deer in North Georgia. Are deer associated with UFOs or possums or raccoons or bears or, you know, the list goes on, bird species, whatever the case may be. So to me, it's like the fact that they co-occur geographically, I don't think is enough to say that they're they're connected or, or correlated to that degree. Then, you know, otherwise, if they were seen all over the world, again, I'd be like, yeah, there's some sort of cultural psychocultural phenomenon happening to me it's fascinating that you can go to the carpathians where there are elk and there are brown bears and there are wolves a lot of the same things you find in north america and there's no history of mystery ape reports there's no collection of evidence there's no modern day reports of these things and so which you would expect if it's totally imaginary well it should just happen everywhere that there's First of all, it should happen everywhere, but people don't report them at the gym or in the hospital or in the kitchen. You know, they report them in forested mountains mostly. Okay, well, let's go to other forested mountains in the world. Why aren't they reported in those places? So to me, it's it's indicative that there are biological animals. Now, whatever UAP, UFOs are, if they are interested in the planet's fauna, which some, I guess, reports or analyses suggest, maybe they're interested in those things too. And I have to say, I was... Of all of the UFO-related claims, the ones that really fascinate me are the crash retrieval claims. Because, you know, I wish we had... It's the same in the Sasquatch world. It's like some people claim to have shot and killed Sasquatches or hit them with a vehicle and killed them and then for whatever reason abandoned it. Yada, yada, yada. They're claims, right? But it's like, man, that could be the key that unlocks this whole thing if any of those claims are true. And so certainly UFO claims have the same sort of potential and so I, I didn't know much about the subject. And at the behest of a friend, I read Witness to Roswell, and it was pretty compelling. 
<laughs> so it seems like something happened there that was beyond just the errant weather balloon. Uh, according to, because that book was so meticulously documented, there were so many claimants where it's like, okay, something beyond the official sort of uh, weather balloon story occurred. And I'd love to know what that was. I hope we all get to find out someday. But that book I found really fascinating. Uh, we all hope we get to find out someday too. Well, Certainly. Matt, it has been so educational to have you. I'm just impressed with how much you know about all things Sasquatch and your vocabulary is quite impressive too. So you can put that on your resume. Very generous of you. Is there anything else that you wanted to share before we wrap up this show? No, I just thank you guys so much for having me on. I know we went over the hour time frame. Not uh, a problem. Brevity has often eluded me, maybe more than the Sasquatch <laughs> has. So I apologize for rambling so much. No, it was wonderful. It was good, Absolutely good wonderful. Show, good show. Yes. Okay. So once again, this was Matt Pruitt with the phenomenal Sasquatch. You can find his book on our website currently, which is bigfootufo.com. If you are listening to us on YouTube, we hope that you will subscribe and like, and thank you for tuning in for your questions. I'm going to send it to Smitty for our sign off. Remember to be happy, be strange, listen to all things unexplained and look for Sasquatch. Good night. <laughs> Not everybody. Thanks. Like. Share. Follow. Comment. Subscribe. Support. What's your hot take on Travis Taylor? <laughs> 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 I've got an exclusive for you guys if you okay. want it about yeah, the Alaska. We do. Okay, okay. More at BigfootUFO.com. All things unexplained. So some of that I think, sir, will save the post. Good show.